0: Thank you so much for being here today. It's going to be a fun day. Uh, Buckle up. I thought the first service was a wonderful intro, it kind of got my feet wet, but I'm starting a brand new series called The Days of Noah. Um, It's going to be different, so if you're visiting, this will be different than normal. Uh, I normally try to take a topic and inspire you on Sunday, but with this topic, we're going to do sort of what we do on Wednesday night. We're going to dive deep. We're going to dig it out. We're going to take our time with it. So it might be a little different than what you're used to on Sunday, but I know and I pray it inspire you. Uh, This topic of the days of Noah is interesting. In all of my years of pastoring, I always have people, what do you think about it? What do you think about the days of Noah? And and by that, they mean, uh, when do you think Jesus is coming back? Do you think it's soon? I grew up in a denomination where Jesus was coming back every week. And... (laughs) (laughs) you just better buckle up because you're probably going to miss it and uh, as a kid it sounds romantic Jesus is coming but typically the way it was presented it's he's coming and you could miss it and if you miss it you're going to burn in hell the rest of your life so growing up there was a lot of well what if I miss it rather than he's coming it was much more of I could miss it and so when you're kissing your girlfriend thinking I could burn in hell and miss it what if Jesus comes back if I'm kissing my girlfriend and so it it kind of lent itself to rather than really hoping Jesus would come it was much more oh my God I hope I make it whatever the, it looked like if he's coming back on a horse or sucking me off the planet in something called the rapture I hope I I hope I make it I hope I make this thing of living with Jesus and then I got a little older and maybe not wiser but a little older and somebody wrote a book 88 reasons of why Jesus is coming back in 1988 anybody remember that one. Actually wrote a book and gave 88 reasons why Jesus would come in 1988. Brilliant book. Everybody that was hungry for Jesus bought it. We had B groups, small groups around it. We preached it. Everybody was repenting. And then 1989 came and Jesus didn't come. So the guy wrote a book, 1989 reasons why he'll come in 89. (laughs) I guess when you miss it in 88, you try it again and sell more books, right? I was smart enough not to buy that one though. I did buy the first one and he didn't come so you kind of think well he didn't come in 88 he didn't come in 89 how about Y2K anybody remember Y2K Jesus is coming in Y2K man pastors were buckled up we were selling our homes moving up in the mountains buying goats and generators and we were planning on the end of the world coming y 2 ks it this is it this is the moment this is when Jesus is coming and we're all watching Dick Clark's rocking New Year's Eve and Dick, nothing happened at Dick Clark and we ended up in 2001 and Jesus didn't come And everybody tried to go sell their cows and get their houses back and I don't know if any pastor ever stood up and said I'm so sorry but he didn't come and then 2013 he came again this time it wasn't really coming because Jesus said but the Mayan calendar said he was coming it was the end of the world and we're all like oh my god it's the end of the world he's coming I know it's here it's coming Mayan calendar I mean if the Mayans calendar ends the world's ending 2014 showed up we're still here 2016, definitely Jesus is coming because Donald Trump got elected, and he's probably the Antichrist, and oh Lord, he's coming. We thought Obama was the Antichrist, and Jesus was coming, but it wasn't Obama, it was Trump, and Trump was the Antichrist. Jesus is probably coming. And... Adios, Trump and Jesus still didn't come. Oh, but then the virus came and the virus was a sign of the end of the world, that the end of the world was here and probably Jesus is coming because this virus, we've never had a global pandemic. This is the end of the world and Zuckerberg is probably trying to put some chip in our arms so they can know where we are at any given moment. That's why they tracked us on our phones. And then all of a sudden, aliens start appearing in the universe and they're everywhere. Aliens are here and then all of a sudden, conspiracy theories are everywhere. The world's not round, the world is flat. No, it is. It's a ball. No, we've been to the moon. No, we've never been to the moon. Jesus is coming back. I bet he's not. Yes, he is. <laughs> and here we sit in 2023, smarter than we've ever been and yet dumber than we've ever been. <laughs> Anybody ever feel like we're so smart? We're stupid. Dear Lord. Yeah. So the days of Noah, what does it mean? What is it? So in that I do, because I I guess my role as a pastor, I get a lot of questions. What is it? What do I think? Do I think the rapture's coming and all the things that come with it? And is Jesus here? So this is going to be we'll probably finish this in about nine years. So we'll (laughs) we'll take our time. Uh, But I do want to be very methodical and I do want to go through it slow and I want to challenge you. I want to talk to you over the next month or so about the days of Noah so this is my introduction there's an interesting scripture tucked into the gospel of Matthew 24 we jump into it at the end almost because we jump in at verse 37 when Jesus is speaking to give you insight on how this works I have to take you to what the whole chapter would be about. Time would not permit that. But the chapter itself starts with Jesus walking out of a religious edifice called the temple. And as he's coming out of this religious moment, they've been doing religious things in the temple. They walk out and Jesus makes a comment about it all. He comments about the buildings, the religious buildings and everything that's going on. And in that, his disciples spur a question. And their question was, when are you coming back? What will be a sign of the end before you come back? And so Jesus begins a discourse. Again, we jump in in verse 37. But he does this beautiful discourse of the end of it all. When humanity bumps into God. When God comes back and redeems the globe. And he begins to tell this story of what it's going to be like, and then in verse 37, he does something interesting, and it's where we get the topic, the days of Noah. And Jesus steps into this moment, and it's intriguing for sure. On a casual reading, it's not more than 12 letter, twelve words. But if we slow down and think it through, it, it does parse our brain to uh, question what is he thinking. Because Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. Now in this moment, here's, here's what we have to pick up on. Jesus has just come out of a religious setting. He walked out of the temple. He's in the present moment. And all of his disciples are asking, is it now? Are you coming now? When? Tell us when. We need to know. Like, just so we understand how urgent it is, they were asking the same question while Jesus was on the earth that we're asking today. 2,000 years later, we're still asking, well, when and where and how they were doing that while he's there. And so in this moment, they ask him the question. This is his response. When the son of man, that's himself. When the son of man returns, that's weird because he jumped us out into the future. In the strangest of ways, he takes the present moment and he leaps to the future. When the Son of Man returns and then does something that's even more perplexing, he links the future to the past. And he says the future will mimic this point in the past called the days of Noah. Like only God himself in the flesh could do, he linked the present, the future, and the past all together. Why? Because Jesus is God the beginning and God the end, and thus must be God in the middle. He's the God of the past, he's the God of the present, and he's the God of the future. So what Jesus does is he intimates to us that he himself is letting them know he's God. Because he says, when I come future, it's going to be like this event in the past, the days of Noah. Now, here's what's even more uh, intriguing to me. Why did he pick this story? Why didn't he say as it was in the days of Daniel? Because then we would have all stayed away from zoos, like, I don't want to get eaten by a lion, as it was in the days of Samson, and like, you better not cut your hair. Like, we would have had literally denominations about don't ever cut your hair, because that's what Jesus meant. Like, why of all the, the, the interesting stories of the Old Testament that he could have picked... To link his return, he chooses the story of a dude named Noah about a boat. Here's what's interesting about that. If you study uh, anthropology and you study religions of the world, you will discover that most religions of the world have a story of some type of global disaster that happened with a flood. You'll see hieroglyphs written on the walls of tragedies and things that have happened and people try to discover, uh, was there a worldwide flood? And almost every religion in their folklore will speak to this. Whether they call the guy Noah or not, even atheists and agnostics know about a story of a guy that built a boat named Noah. Whether they believe it or not, it's pretty well ingrained into the culture of the world that there was this catastrophe over the, over the entire earth where it was destroyed with water. Jesus picks that. He, he doesn't say as it was when David killed Goliath. Great story. So why does he link this so clearly to his return? Here's my thinking. He linked it because Jesus in the present is the same Jesus of the future, but Jesus was also there in Noah's day because he's eternal. I don't mean Jesus as God in the flesh, but I mean Jesus as the Word of God. The eternal Word of God has been there since the beginning. As a matter of fact, the entire world was framed by His Word. So when He says, as it was in the days of Noah, He's not just talking about all the stories that were passed down to Him as a little Jewish boy. He's intimating, in the days of Noah, I was there. My presence was there. You might not have seen my flesh because I wasn't God in the flesh yet. I was God the Word. But I was there. I was over all creation. So he chooses to link this in such a way. Here's what's interesting. It's a guarantee of whatever happened back then. It'll be just like that when I get ready to return. And this is what's brought me to want to study it out. I've never taught it uh, in a series for sure. I've I've commented on it in messages. This is my take on it of what I want to talk about. Here's the thought. Why would Jesus appeal to the days of Noah for his return? Here's uh, what we typically talk about. When we talk about the days of Noah, especially if you're religious, your brain goes to all of the stuff that was going on that's evil. Oh my God, sexual perversion was rampant. Oh my God, tragedies in the world. Oh my God, drag queens, I don't know if they had drag queens in, but still. Oh my God, blood moons, oh it's blood moons. Every time a blood moon comes, you think Jesus is coming. Every time perversion ramps up, oh, it's, Jesus is probably coming because it's just, ooh, it's so wicked. Ugh, it's just wicked today. Ugh, trans and, you know, ugh, and, and drag queens and ugh. Oh, and aliens. Oh, come on, don't act like you don't know about them. <laughs> in 1950, we didn't want to talk about them, but today they've shown up. They're like, hey, I'm here. And I'm like, yes, I knew it. They've been hiding one in Area 51. I knew it. I knew it. But all of this is what we think when we think the days of Noah. Oh, it's so wicked now. It's so perverted now. Oh, there's aliens and there's stuff and there's, there's things they're putting in our arm and there's global banking systems and perversions. And, and probably Zuckerberg could be working with the devil to get us all on some global thing. And oh, we're about to go into a global digital currency where they can control us all. God, I know Jesus is coming. So when we think about the days of Noah, we're parsing and picking all the evil to try to tell us that it's so evil today, Jesus probably has to come. However, as evil as this may appear to us, and as divine as a blood moon may feel to us, can you think of anything more evil than the first man biting the piece of fruit? Can you, any, anything more evil than that? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I would say a drag queen reading to a bunch of kids in kindergarten, by God, that's evil. Yeah. No, 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 that's the result of evil. Yeah. Yeah. The greatest evil yeah. was eating the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Everything else you see pales in comparison yeah. to the man that ate the fruit. Absolutely. The man that went is the worst sin of evil that has ever been committed in the entirety of humanity. Lump in Hitler, lump in everybody else, the dictator and murdered people, was the worst evil that could ever be done. But this feels good. This, this kind of helps me make posts on Facebook. This helps me have sermon series about blood moons. I can write books about it and sell them and talk about Jesus coming. So when when we think that Jesus alluded to the days of Noah because it's so evil, I would have to say there's been evil every generation. The only reason LGBTQ feels so weird now is because they took the alphabet and they keep adding letters. There's been homosexual people from the beginning of time. You think the only reason you think it's new is because of Instagram. There's been drags and trance from the beginning of time. Read the book of Leviticus. There's been sexual perversion from the beginning of time. God had to make a law that said, hey, don't sleep with your kids. Don't sleep with your cousin. Don't sleep with your sister. Don't sleep with your mother. Don't sleep with your ox. Don't sleep with an animal. That's God having to give laws in the book of Leviticus that you shouldn't sleep with your donkey. (laughs) It doesn't feel so dirty as nobody was tweeting it back then But don't kid yourself like we're the most perverted generation that's ever lived If we were he would have never needed Leviticus Perversion has been here from the bite of the fruit First kid out perverted killed his brother And we've been on a downhill run It just feels like it's in your face because now we can connect globally all the evil that happens in the snap of a finger. I can now see the perversion happening around the world in a snap of a finger and it feels a lot dirtier because it's so instant. But is that what Jesus is trying to get us to look at? Here's the thought today. Our perspective of what's going on during the days of Noah needs to shift. What I would like to do today is shift your thinking when we Christians hear the days of Noah and what does it mean? Here he is. I googled him. That's what Google thinks he looks like. Pretty cool. I'm thinking about preaching the rest of the series in a turban because that looks cool. I think that's a good rendition of any man that lives with women for a year on a boat. That looks pretty good. (laughs) Here's what Genesis 9 says. Genesis 9 says he lived 950 years and then he died. So when we hear as it was in the days of Noah, our religious brain thinks boat. The days of Noah consisted of 950 years So the moment I dumb 950 years into one year, he was on the boat a little more than a year. I take 950 years, I ignore 949 of them, and I go, as it was in the days of Noah on that boat. That's how it's going to be when God comes back. We're talking 950 years the dude lived. Do you know what would happen if I took 2023 and subtracted 950 years? I'm at the year 1073. At the year 1073 was the Byzantine Empire. It was rocking and rolling. It wasn't until about 1400 that the Ottoman Empire took over the Byzantine Empire with the capture of the Constantinople and ergo all the way to World War I the Ottoman Empire went until they all split. That's how long Noah lived. The bro was alive in the Byzantine Empire, made it through the Ottoman Empire, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, the Korean War, all of the other wars. He was here when LGBTQ started. And we go, now, now, what do you think it's going to be like when Jesus returns? And we go, the days of Noah. Okay, so you're talking about Byzantine Empire days of Noah? Or Ottoman andto. Tabern- 950 years. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're going to be able to pick one little nugget of what Jesus was thinking and go, "How many blood moves could we have in 950 years? We'll die off at age 80, 90 years old. It is even hard to wrap our mind that that if there was a guy 950 years and he goes, well, I was here in the Byzantine Empire and everything you teach in your colleges are wrong. It would be hard to even write a history book when everybody is the living history. So let's just not think, well, when Jesus said Noah, he's just thinking a boat. He's thinking from birth to death. What I would like to do over the next 30 years. (laughs) I would like to take you on the birth of Noah to the boat and the flood to the years after the flood. We have zero to 600 pre-flood, one year plus on the boat, and then we have another 349 years after the flood. And Jesus said, as it was in that dude's life, so shall it be when I come back. So I present to you, it's going to be very hard to connect how it was to evil because there's always been evil. But I think Jesus was thinking differently than we humans think. I want to give you a chart to look at, if I may. If you would like this chart and all the notes, you can go to the QR code, scan it, all my sermon. This whole thing will be on there. Usually by Tuesday, you can download it. So I decided to look at this day of Noah and what is Jesus trying to teach us? So zero, year zero here, down to year 1700, because right here in 1656 is going to be the flood. So I just went from Adam to Noah, and this is kind of what you get. You get Adam who lived 930 years. So he's just a mere puppy. It's hard to even fathom that if we're honest. But this is where it gets very intriguing. It goes from Adam down to Noah. And in the year 1056, Noah is born. So 1,056 years from Adam, Noah is born. And we just learned in Genesis 9 that Noah lives to be 950 years old. And Jesus, when he's going to talk about this, he's going to talk about this time frame is the days of Noah. You remember he's just come out of the religious temple. He just makes inference that he will return. And then when he inferences his return, he's speaking about this blue box. That there's something that will happen inside this blue box that will distinctly let you know how close he is to coming back. I just have to be wise enough to go, well, then what's in the box? Because Jesus already told me it's the box that's going to define it. It's not some guy writing a book about 1988 and 88 reasons. It's not a blood moon. It's it's this box. It's not Mark Zuckerberg. It's not the new Fed Now. It's not the new global twenty thirty agenda. Jesus didn't allude to any of that. What he alluded to is the blue box. And so many of us are trying to find everything outside the blue box to confirm his coming rather than saying, forget that, let me go into the blue box and see what Jesus wants to say. So I would like to take the next month or so and teach you what's in the blue box to determine how close we are to Jesus' return. That's my thinking. I think we could do it. So, what begins to happen is we're going to take a bloodline of legacy from Adam to Noah. Now, if we go to Genesis 5, this whole chart I put together from Genesis 5. So, you can go there, read verse 1 through, and this chart is basically my summation of Genesis 5. In Genesis 5, we pick up a kid of Adam and Eve called Seth. If you go to Luke chapter 3, Seth is going to be connected to Jesus Christ. So the moment I say Adam to Seth, I'm already talking about Jesus because from Seth in Luke 3, way out here in the future, he's going to be connected to Jesus Christ. So when I begin to read these names, I'm talking about the legacy of Jesus Christ. With every name, I'm one step closer to the legacy of Jesus in the flesh. God in the flesh, one step closer. And here's this guy Noah that Jesus refers to. Jesus connects himself to this guy. Interesting thought. Seth has Enish Now this is interesting to me. Because when Enosh is born, he lives 905 years. He dies right at close to the birth of Noah. That means when Noah's born, Adam's grandkid is alive. That's how close Noah is to Adam. He, He has gotten the grandson of Adam is alive when he's born. So you're talking about Adam lives to be 930. That means the guy that God created, communed with, walked with, talked with, dies just about, what, 90 years before Noah's born. That's like me and you going, hey, anybody remember the civil rights movement? And then some of these older people go, oh, I was there. Could you imagine sitting here with Noah's father and Noah talking to Enosh and go tell us what it was like? Tell us what your daddy told you. Well, my daddy Seth told me that granddaddy Adam said and They're all passing down the story of God So let's not pretend that Noah's some ignorant man that has no clue what's happening Because the next one is Kenan. And now what we find out, Kenan gives birth to Mahalilu. Mahalilu gives birth to Jared. Jared gives birth to Enoch. Enoch never dies. That's why I gave him some green lines. Pretty cool dude just to get so close to God you disappear. I would just challenge some of you men, don't get too close. Because if you disappear, your wife's going to be skeptical. (laughs) Where have you been? God took me. I swear he did. He hadn't texted me in months. He probably, and know, oh God did. Could you imagine just communing with God and God's like, dude, you ready? You're like, ready for what? And you're just gone. And the weird thing, he's still alive. According to what we believe biblically, Enoch never died. He's still alive. He's in a human body, still alive. He'll come back one day and die though. Don't get too excited. Enoch has Methuselah For you Bible scholars, he's the oldest living human ever recorded to live, 969 years. Methuselah had Noah's daddy, Lamech. Uh, I might get into this later, but it's very interesting that Lamech lived 777 years. For those of you that love numbers, that ought to inspire you to study that the father of Noah lived 777 years. And now Noah's born. But I want you to look at the most interesting thing in this Section of where we call the days of Noah because here shoots this line down of where God is going to judge the world. Noah will be alive 600 years before God judges the world. And in this 600 years of Noah being alive, there's all these godly legacy of men who have lived in his generation, who've passed the stories down, we hope, who've represented who Adam was, the men men of righteousness that passed along the legacy of the first man that ever walked with God. All of them living in this time of Noah. Here's what's interesting Maybe it'll help us see maybe why Jesus picked this this moment of time in the naming of people. I know today we really don't care. It's like, I named her Becky Bubba. Like, that's just what we do. But but in biblical times, your name meant something. I think my name Mark means great defender. (laughs) Just don't chase me because I get scared. (laughs) Adam's name meant man, Seth's names meant appointed, Enoch's names meant mortal, Kenan's name meant sorrow, Mahalalel's name meant blessed God, Jared's name meant shall come down, Enoch's name meant teaching, Methuselah's name his death shall bring, which is interesting. We may talk about this later. The moment, Enoch, the moment Methuselah died, the flood came, Lamech, the despairing, and Noah rest. That if you look at that, the gospel message is in the lineage of the men that were coming down through time to Noah. So when Jesus links to the days of Noah, what he's linking to is the gospel message that was being presented through the generations to this group of people. So that if we don't do Adam, Seth, Enish, Kenan, but we do what their name meant, it is literally the definitive definition of Jesus. Man, that's Adam, humans, has been appointed for mortal sorrow. But the blessed God, that's Jesus, shall come down in the flesh and he will teach. And what he will teach is that his death is going to bring something. What is his death going to bring? It's going to bring the despairing rest. So when Jesus points back to the days of Noah, he chose this, not because it's a better story than Daniel or David and Goliath. He chose this because God was pushing the message of the gospel into a generation. And he was going to choose this and this was going to be called the days of Noah. And the days of Noah was the gospel message before Jesus was ever here, pushed into a generation. God is pushing the gospel to a generation. And what we've done with the days of Noah is we've made it about all the evil and the terrible things. But watch what happens. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race was or how they had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of human hearts were only evil all the time. So the Lord, interesting, he regretted. Now when you're a God of perfection and you regret what you did, He regretted that he made humans, beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So why this story? What is Jesus? Remember, picture if you will. Jesus is walking out of a religious setting of a temple where the law and the sacrifices are being made. He walks out of that religious moment. He looks around at all the religious buildings and he says, in the moment when I return, it's going to be just like it was, not now but as it was in the days of Noah. Oh, wait a minute. There's no temple here. There's a lot of people looking at the nation of Israel. What do you think Israel's going to do? Oh, Israel, look at Israel. When you know Israel, you'll know. There was not even anybody named Israel here. There's no nation of Israel here. There's no Jewish people here. We haven't even got to Abraham yet. And Jesus links himself to this moment. And what we do, because we're human, we naturally say, oh, he's talking about all the evil. I mean, come on, he's talking about the Nephilim. And you know that those were spirit beings or angels or demons. We don't know yet, but it just depends on whether you read the book of Enoch or not. But here's what we know. We know that beings mated with women and had all these, these giants. Like, we like that. Who do you think the Nephilim are? Are they bees? Were they angels? Are they fallen angels? Did they really mate with women? How can a spirit being mate with a woman and have a baby? Well, that's where all the giants come from. That's how we got Neptune and Poseidon and Zeus. Because there's something about us that like to think the more evil it gets that God is going to hurry up. I challenge you with that because to me, the more evil it gets, the more patient he is because he wants people to repent. So if it's evil, buckle up. It's probably going to be a while. He's waiting on you to open your pie hole and tell somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why would Jesus allude to this box as a sign because what Jesus wants us to know is I'm connecting myself not to an evil perverted world I'm connecting myself to how righteous men should have responded in the middle of it and you need to think rather than evil you need to start thinking what was God's heart in this time don't think blood moon Think whatever happened here broke God's heart. Don't think the Jewish nation. No, whatever happened here broke God's heart. Well, what could break God's heart? His heart had already been broken with Adam. What could could take God to the place of going, I'm just going to have to get rid of all of them but one family? And the most interesting thing about this The most interesting thought is that it's not about what evil people are doing, but it's about what righteous people stop doing. Because here we sit with God having a broken heart, with God saying of the entire generation, wait a minute, you mean all these people that were carrying the story, all these people that were part of the legacy, they get in this box, and now that they have the entire gospel, the entire gospel message of a man's appointed to mortal sorrow, the blessed God will come down teaching, right here sits the gospel message, and God's like... "Eh." And what Jesus is showing us, if you want to know what it will look like when I return, stop looking at evil and watch what is happening with godly men who pretend to be righteous. And we are in a crisis of godly men who are pretending to be righteous. We're worried about drag queens when you're breaking God's heart. You're worried about LGBTQ and you're the problem. I'm the problem. Because what happened here is godly men lost sight of righteousness. How in the how in the world could spirit beings come down and mate with women because the godly men shut up and kept their mouths shut? Because they became silent. Because they quit passing the message along. And so here's what I believe. The days of Noah are godly men who live unfaithful. They live unfaithful to God's righteous expectations. They compromise a blameless life. They live a carnal life where they're remaining silent to the gospel message. This is what it was like in the days of Noah. There had always been sin and perversion. But what Jesus was wanting us to know is that the godly line of Seth had grown silent. They had compromised. They had quit shutting it down. Evil had taken over because godly men started living carnal. Because godly men kept their mouths shut. Because godly men started compromising. Because godly men started living unfaithful. And the church today, I'm lumping myself in with you. The church today, man, I'm just going to talk to you. The church today is filled with carnal, ungodly, unrighteous, uncommitted men who sit in church and who play a game. Young men who say they love Jesus, but they shack up with their girlfriend. Men who say they love God, but they love their addiction more. Men who say they love Jesus, but their wife has to tuck them in drunk at night. Men who say they love the Lord, but really they're addicted to porn. Men who say, I love God, but really they don't love God, they love themselves in the middle of a godly generation they become unrighteous and the church is filled with them here's here's the interesting thing God gave us no women here and yet all of us know there had to be a woman in the mix they didn't just burp a baby out I know today they tell you a man can but they can't But God didn't tell us the women why, this is my theology, because he's going to hold the men responsible for where the generation goes. Godly men who've become carnal. Godly men who will drop elf bombs and kick things and throw things and say, well, I've just had a bad day. No, you haven't. You're carnal. Well, everybody just needs to kick back with a fifth of whiskey every now and then it's been a rough day. Okay, great. But you have now become compromising in your righteousness. And that's what this entire generation did. They're all just a few generations, a move from the first guy ever. And by the time God shows up, he said, no, it ain't about evil. It's about you righteous people have broken my heart. You forgot who I was. You didn't walk with me anymore. You didn't let me commune with you anymore." And our generation is filled with men who are lusting after other women, who are addicted, who are distracted, who and we go, and you're concerned about a blood moon? You're, you're concerned about where Israel's going? You're concerned that the Euphrates River dried up? That's the top, that's the top tier of your worries? Because when God looks at this, I don't think he's looking at the evil. I think he's looking at where were all the godly men that were to be owning their 50 feet, taking my message. That by the time I got ready to do something, I could only find one dude who was blameless. So if you want to know what it's going to look like in the days before Jesus comes, it's going to be very few men of God who are living righteous. They're gonna be in the temple being religious, but they won't be righteous. They're gonna be doing all the religious stuff. They sing the songs, they've got the playlist, they wear the t-shirts, they they go to church, they serve on a committee, but their soul is dirty. Their mind is dirty, their eyes are dirty, their ears are dirty, their dreams are dirty. Everything they do is dirty, but they're religious. They check the boxes. They give themselves grace. Well, you know, I mean, God ain't done with me yet. You better be glad he's not done with us yet. I, I'm not trying to preach some you know, terrible thing. It's just, do you understand when the Bible literally says you broke my heart? When was the last time any of you men ever just looked in the mirror and said, did I break God's heart? No, you look in the mirror and go, God, I hurt my wife again. I'm stupid. I got to go to apologize to my kids. Uh, I drank too much last night. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to kick the dog. Well, I did, but I'm sorry. I'm working a lot and I know I've ignored you. Like, like we're sorry for everything but breaking God's heart. Right. I'm sorry I got fired. I'm sorry you caught me looking at porn. I'm sorry I did that drug again. I'm sorry I'm addicted. I mean, just love me. Okay, great. We all love you and we're all glad. Welcome to the world. But do men, do we look in the mirror and look at our soul and say, is my soul breaking God's heart? That doesn't fill up churches today. Young boys and young men over here. Young guys over here. I'm glad the world says go shack up with anybody. Try it out before you buy it. But it's evil. It is evil incarnate. I'm glad if you want to go throw back a beer. Hallelujah, whatever. But when they have to tuck you in bed drunk time and time again, and you can boast of how many times that we've, we've, we've skirted the issues of life. Living ungodly, living carnal. Fingers crossed that my girlfriend is not pregnant. And the whole time breaking God's heart. Yeah. I don't even hardly ever hear it anymore. All we're told is God loves you. God loves you. Oh, God loves you. The same God of love never changes. This was a God of love. We sure don't seem angry. He was hurt. He judged the world, but it was love. We live in a generation that says live any way you want to. God loves you. Listen to whatever you want to listen, watch whatever you want to watch, act however you want to act. God's just don't judge us, YOLO man, just love God, do whatever you want Want to smoke, smoke it up. You want to toke, toke it up, do whatever you do, you just make sure you wear it. What would Jesus do? Brace it. And you go to church somewhere and get in a youth group and maybe go to youth camp and try to help people. And if you get drunk, try not to post it online. I mean, just be smart with it. And it, oh man! It, and it's, it's weird to be the preacher preaching it because I is a human too. And the reason I can preach it so passionately to you is I laid at the pool yesterday with my daughter going, oh God, man, if I've ever broken your heart, I'm so sorry. I literally just, if I've ever, I sat in dad's office before service. I'm like, oh God, man. And then the weird thing of that is, of course, I've broken his heart. I'm a human. You've broken his heart, I've broken his heart. But the beauty of God is a righteous man says, I don't like breaking his heart. I don't want that to be my testimony. Yes, I've broken his heart and it crushed me, but I don't want that to be my testimony and my character. I don't want to keep going in the hole and out of the hole. God, I've broken your heart, forgive me, and then help me to walk a blameless life. not asking you to live some perfection. I'm asking you that when you break his heart, you repent and you dust yourself off and keep walking. You quit giving yourself a get out of jail free card. You stop compromising and you stop living unfaithful and you dust yourself off. Man, I have been unfaithful. I've compromised. I've lived carnal. I'm doing things that would break God's heart. But God man, forgive me. And he says yes, I will. Amen. But what will it be like when Jesus returns? There'll be an entire generation of godly men who now live unfaithful. Yeah. Who have no righteous expectations. They compromise all the time. They, they don't look for blameless. They look for carnality. They're definitely not only in their 50 feet. They're just silent. Right. I present to you, you could you, you could almost answer it yourself, do you believe he 's close off that one thing along, how bold are godly men living today, right. or how compromising are we living? Yeah. How carnal are we living, or how holy are we living? Just let that be our our litmus test let 's don 't judge blood moons. judge you. Right. judge me. and if across the room. We find that the majority of men in a spirit filled church go, Well, yeah, I do kind of live carnal. Oh, man, I compromise quite a bit, but I don't want to. Then I would say maybe we're closer than we thought. Because I will tell you one thing I rarely hear today, rare. I'm not saying it's not true, but rare. I rarely hear men saying, I just desire to live a blameless life. Most men, young especially, like to live as close to the edge of carnality and hell as they can get. Rather than, I want to live a blameless life. Perhaps the shift in perspective needs to be this. It needs to shift from being the amount of evil people in the world to amount of righteous people that break God's heart. I would have never thought I would have seen local churches that are now just so woke with, with evil that has permeated God's house. And, and by evil, I mean just totally anti what the Bible would teach. But yet churches are just filled with the theology of perversion today. Why? Because it's not the wicked people that break God's heart. It's the righteous people who don't live it that break his heart so I leave you with this thought the next time you think aliens and drag queens and blood moons and why don't when you think the days of Noah look in the mirror at yourself and if you want to know how close God is look at how many people are begging God and chasing God for a blameless life And if the majority of men in this room and the majority of Christian men we know aren't chasing a blameless life, I would say we're probably closer than we've ever been before. Because I've never lived in a generation where carnality and compromise among men who claim to be Christians is at such a high percentage. And it's a call to live holy. Men, stand up with me if you will. Band, come. Just the men for a minute. fellas I try at this church to 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 be transparently honest with you I don't pretend that I'm some special guru of holiness but I also try to hear in my heart what God would want to say to us as a church And I want to say that I'm not pointing fingers, picking on all your issues. Only the Holy Ghost knows all your issues. I don't. I know mine. And I know that Mark Evans can preach a sermon today and go home and go, was it good or bad? And never look at myself and go, but how how is my soul? Where am I compromising as a man of God? Am, Am I compromising in my family? Am I allowing things in my family because I won't stand up as a man of God? Am I allowing my daughters to get away with things because I won't stand up as a man of God? Am I allowing my generation to go to hell in a handbasket because I won't lift my voice and say something? I tolerate all the jokes, I tolerate the perversions, I tolerate the carnality. I give myself a lot of grace, but I don't call myself higher as a man. Fellas, I'm calling all of you higher. Let go of the addictions, let go of the hurts, let go of the carnality. And how, how will we do that? The, the only way I know, practical, is in a moment I'm gonna release you to communion, all of us to come for communion. But in that moment, it's nothing more than God, and this is the prayer I would ask you to pray, fellas, everybody, but specifically the men. Because we, we, we have potential here of a righteous generation is on our fingertips. When you come to the communion today and you take it, I encourage you to go back to your seat and pray one simple prayer. God, is there anything in my life that is breaking your heart? And don't let it be a preacher that pointed out things. That's just a sermon. Let it be the Holy Spirit that talked to you. Maybe he'll say, hey, the way you speak, the way you think, your thoughts, your actions, your, here's things, and I know this, if you ask God, where am I breaking your heart? He will tell you. Father God, I bless the fellows today. The fellows that represent a righteous generation fellas that I guess if we were all honest we sometimes feel like we're in an all-out war. It hits us from every side. The world just bombarding us as we're in this blue box. Righteous men being bombarded with evil and compromise and uh, carnality and, and, and we just lose sight that we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We carry the message of God to the next generation and yet it seems like evil grows and grows because righteous men become quiet righteous men have become rebellious and I bless every man standing today I bless it when they touch that bread and dip it in that water that your heart will be revealed I pray that you will capture every man and every woman in this building Who, God, we as a generation of righteous people will not just be religious, but we will be righteous. We will not just do the duties, but we will have power. We will carry the legacy of Jesus to our generation, and we will not just cower down. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us of breaking your heart. Would everybody stand with me if you will? I'm going to release you to communion.